Okay. Just now you're going to find out I actually wrote this. Are we now ready? We are now ready. September 20th. Here we go. 2015. Lecture discussion number 212 on the book of Romans. And well now, a fine mess I've gotten myself into Ollie. With apologies to Laurel and Hardy. See, I'm, I'm current, aren't I? I try to I work hard at remaining current. Some would say hip and happening uh, by using these references from the 1940s. Uh, so that's trying to reach the younger crowd is what I'm doing. How's it working? Look around. Okay. I have indeed, though, placed a mountain of material on the proverbial table. Now so large, even I, your beloved professional church person, I'm questioning whether or not I can get, keep track of all of it. It's a big pile. No question about that. And to bring the problem into focus, I most recently diverted last week, for example, into Matthew 27, 51 through 55, which is where I'll be today. Uh, I followed that up with the transfiguration, Matthew 17, while all the while juggling, remember Lot's wife, uh, Matthew 11 and 12, and all that inside of chapters 11 and 12 of, of uh, Mark, sorry, not Matthew, Mark. The pillar of cloud, the sons of thunder, the donkey foal, the palm leaves, the image of God, the vineyard tree, I mean the vineyard, the fig trees, the olive trees, Peter's threes, salt, the sign of the, of the wife of Jehovah, the sign of the bride of Christ, garments, cornerstone, money-changing coins, just to touch a few of those things. That's all there for us to begin to assimilate and uh, place in their proper positions. And I bring all this up to illustrate uh, my continued capability to keep all the plates spinning. I am aware that they're spinning and that I have them on sticks. And I do that to, to make you know that I know that there are spinning plates spinning and to remind the stragglers that there are spinning plates on sticks overhead, uh, all of which are wobbling, likely to crash upon the unsuspecting. So... Uh, Today we're going to take on this Matthew 27, 51 through 55. I'm going to re-begin here and make another obligatory list to place alongside. On the other side over here is the transformation list. Can't do that today. I know you thought I would, but this gets to be so long that I have to do it now and then put them together eventually. Uh, all of that to get me back to Ezekiel and Lot's wife and pillars and such. So, let's get started. It's going to be a big fight today. Matthew 27, 51 through 55. I'll just read it and then we'll deal with it. Um, are we ready? Here we go. Then behold. Then we'll tell, take you back. Behold takes you forward. The, that means something amazing is going to happen. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, after his resurrection... Then they went into the holy city and appeared to many, or everything that I just read happened after his resurrection. It just depends on how you put your punctuation, right? So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake, isn't that interesting? They didn't feel the earthquake, they saw the earthquake. 
I saw an earthquake March 27, 1964. I also felt it. But when you have an earthquake of that size, you see it. It's a dramatic thing you never forget. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Joseph, Joseph, if you wish, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Okay, there we go. It needs to be said that this event occurs only in the book of Matthew, only in the gospel of Matthew, and it causes a great deal of controversy. As amongst biblical commentators, uh, certainly, as well as the atheist organizations. The atheist organizations know very well that 27, 51 through 55 of Matthew is here and what it means. They are devoted to discrediting Scripture, and they use this particular passage in Matthew to discredit Matthew. So know that. For thousands of years now, the Matthew 27, 51 through 55 passage has caused grief in the church. Battles rage here. And I suggest that you spend some time um, researching the various positions. I'll go over some of the more prominent ones a little bit today, next week mostly. But uh, you need to know about them, I believe. Know what the church has thought and what the church is thinking today. It's also advisable to read the atheists and the monists and the people. Uh, you'll see a lot of the other denominations, or not denominations, other religions attack the Bible here based on Matthew 27, 51 through 55. They will tell you, um, uh, especially the atheists, that uh, what I just read is evidence of pagan corruption or pagan embellishment. And so, therefore, it can't possibly be scriptural. And if it is that way, if it didn't really happen, and it is just some kind of uh, pagan... Um, fanciful fable, then you've discredited the entire book of gospel, or the entire gospel of Matthew, and, and now we're on well on our way to rendering all of the Bible to be uh, um, eventually discarded. So uh, know uh, about that particular aspect. In any event, it's, it's my usual certain self that uh, this debate is needless. All that you need to do to solve Matthew 27, 51 through 55 is the fundamental. The fundamental is the fundamental. Jesus Christ is never not God. If you do that, you start there every time these sorts of passages uh, become obvious and they work themselves out really uh, fairly, I don't want to say simple. It's not simple, but it's clean. It works. Jesus Christ is never not God, and he is about proving that and about saving people. Those are the two, uh, those two are not separable. You must understand when you approach these kinds of scriptures. By the way, if you find a passage in the Bible that you don't understand, don't throw out the rest of the Bible because of it. Just work on the one you don't understand. It's helpful, also helpful to note that uh, Matthew the Apostle, formerly Levi the tax collector, is a Jew. If you know that, then you're well on your way to understanding how he wrote it, why he wrote it, the, the method in which he wrote it. He's a Jew, and who's he writing to? 
Jews. So I have a Jew writing to Jews. So what do I need to know? I need to know how... I need to recognize Jewish thought processes and Jewish methods and concepts. I need to know what the Old Testament says. Clearly, I'm going to have an Old Testament reference to this. An Old Testament compliment. But for some reason, neither the Godhood of Christ and the Jewishness of Matthew are considered when evaluating Matthew 27, 51 through 55. And we're not going to make that common error. So, list makers going to list, right? Here we go. First thing that you notice, while you read along, I'm going to make the list. Now, realize that I have to take this list and put it together with last week's list. So, I'll be flipping the board around uh, all day long next Sunday, I hope. First thing you notice is this behold. The behold means something extraordinary is going to be taught to you. And by the way, the whole passage is a behold. The centurion is a behold. The veil being torn is a behold. The rocks being split is a behold. There's a tremendous amount of behold here. The earthquake is a behold. All these beholds. The veil will be torn in two. You just assumed that it was torn in two and that would be easy, right? Why not? But it's ripped completely in half. Why? Why not halfway? Why not partway? Why not into three pieces? Torn in two. What does that have to do? And what the veil, of course, most of you know the understanding of the veil, access to God and all the elements that are there. It's an incredible. It's torn top to bottom. What's the obvious question? Why not bottom to top? Why not side to side? Why are these details here like this? There's an incredible earthquake. Some people will say two. Uh, we'll argue that next week. How many earthquakes are there? Again, you have to understand how Jews write. Rocks are split. Why that detail? Earthquake split rocks. And then this one. Graves are opened. Does that have anything to do with rocks being split? I should not. I've got to be careful here. Many bodies. We asked last week, how many is many? Notice it's bodies. God does not call you a body. You are never called a body. You are always called a living soul. The machine in which the living soul is in control of is called a body. Saints, define saints. We'll be about doing that here in a minute. That had fallen asleep. The saints didn't fall asleep. What fell asleep? The bodies of the saints had fallen asleep. What fell asleep? Did the saints or the bodies? The bodies did. You do not fall asleep. There Now we're talking about the doctrine of soul sleep, which is, uh, of course, heresy. Make sure I have this all right. We're raised. So I have resurrection. H-I-J-K. I know my alphabet. After... 
his resurrection. Now, I alluded to this. The his is clearly Christ, right? Oops. What happened after his resurrection? But part of this happened. Were the saints raised after his resurrection? Uh, were the saints raised after the earthquake? How, what's the order, the chronological order of this? And do not think that it is in chronological order because the Jews seldom write chronologically. It's rare when they do. Matthew is a Jew writing to Jews. He did not care about uh, the time sequence. We care about the time sequence because we're wired that way. The Jews do not. So understand that your adherence to the time sequence could give you a misunderstanding of the whole event. H-I-J-K-L. I'm doing good, aren't I? They went into Jerusalem. I'm going to ask you again. When did they go into Jerusalem? Why did they go into Jerusalem? They appeared to many. Once more, we have to define many. How many is many? Centurion had something to say about this. He's a Roman. What he says is astonishing. Now I have these many women. And then they're named. I'll do it up here so I can see them. Mary Magdalene. Mary, mother of James and Joseph. And then the mother of the sons of thunder. Oops. If you were here last week, you know that we've got to deal with the sons of thunder. Thunder usually used in the, in the vernacular of the time as a, as a uh, reference to the voice of God or languages. Okay, I know that's a big long list and this is indeed a very difficult proposition. Question after question after question. Steal yourself for lots of questions now. More than the usual amount of questions. This is one of those times where I say, will the usher please come forward and hand out the drool buckets. This is brutal today and I don't even know what to say to you. Run now if you can. The first question, why is this account only in the Gospel of Matthew? It doesn't it seem to you that it's extraordinary? It's nowhere else in the Bible in the New Testament at all. Isn't it amazing? Or so it seems, by the way. We'll get into that as well. It is astonishing. The graves were open. People poured out and ran into the city of Jerusalem and appeared to the people in Jerusalem. This is uh, saints resurrected coming into the city. Uh, isn't that unbelievable, right? You would certainly, if you were there, you would notice all these resurrected people running out of the graveyards coming into the city, right? You would notice. And last week I suggested that there were hundreds if not thousands of these people. So where did they go? 
Why isn't this anywhere else in the New Testament? Why didn't Paul refer to this? He's talking about resurrection to the Corinthians, Thessalonians. Why didn't he mention? Remember those thousands and thousands of people that ran into Jerusalem when Christ died? He never makes any mention of it, or so it seems. I would ask you right now to tell me where he does say about it. How about Mark? How about Luke? How about John? Peter? Peter had all kinds of opportunities. He had a tremendous speech to the people of Jerusalem. How about James? The brother of Christ, if you will, half-brother, however you want to discern and divide that. What about the women that came to the tomb? Didn't they see all these risen saints pouring out of the graveyard? Why didn't Matthew name any of these people? What happened to them? Who did they appear to? Peter, again, in his sermon to the men of Judea in Jerusalem, Acts 2.14-47, through 47, does not seem to mention this mass resurrection of the dead. Acts 2.40, however, might make you think he did mention it. But he certainly didn't mention it as specifically as Matthew did. The Apostle John does not seem to include it either. However, John 21-25 might make you conclude that he did. Why was this incredible sign only in Matthew and seemingly nowhere else in the New Testament? Didn't they think on a scale of 1 to 10, you want a sign. I know signs today are absolutely all zeros, to be fair. What we call signs are, are just parlor tricks. So this is a sign. Dead people pouring out of a cemetery coming into the city. On a scale of 0 to 10, how big a sign is that? You can vote now, everybody. We all have little handheld devices now. And you can vote on your handheld device and the tally will be shown overhead. Okay, we have none of that technology if you're listening on the Internet. We don't raise our hands here. But I think that most of you would vote 10, would you not? If Clat Cemetery, thousands of people poured out of the Clat Cemetery and ran into South Anchorage, wouldn't we go, wow, that's a pretty big deal. Obviously, the many who loathe and hold the Bible in contempt ask the questions that I just asked you. They ask these questions and others with the agenda of discrediting the entire Gospel of Matthew. But to be fair, the church, commentators, Bible scholars, they also wrestled with these same aforementioned questions. And you can find them. Most of the time, the Bible scholars will tell you, look, we can't solve Matthew 27, 51 through 55. We don't know the answers to any of these questions, so don't worry about it. Just assume it's true. Let it go. Don't think about it. Forget it. Let's focus on things that we can solve. We can't solve this one. So just let it go. And I disagree, as you know. Jesus Christ is always God. He's never not God at any time. He's about proving that and saving people with it. 
He can't save anybody. No one can be saved unless Christ is God. So the two, again, inseparable. And Matthew is a Jew writing to Jews. That's how you begin. So I think it's of great benefit to address the issues of Matthew 27, 51 through 55 for those and other reasons. As it's likely you're going to encounter somebody eventually who is either a genuine concern about this particular passage or who's going to use it to beat you over the head with it. Or your kids. Or your friends. To repeat. I can't repeat it enough. Jesus Christ is always God and Matthew is a Jew. Writing to Jews. That's how to begin this. Any other approach? You're going to fail every time. And I often get asked with respect to Matthew 27, 51 through 55, uh, something along these lines, who could not believe in Christ if they saw hundreds of dead saints coming into Jerusalem? And that's given to me like everybody who saw hundreds of dead saints coming previously dead, now resurrected saints, anyone who saw this great sign, would immediately believe that Christ is God and be saved. That's how it's implied. And the answer is, is beyond obvious. How many, if, if a, let's go ahead and concede the premise or the hypothesis. Let's say I have a thousand saints resurrected running into Jerusalem and 10,000 witnessed it. How many of the 10,000 would be saved because of this incredible sign? Give me a number. What do you think? See, it's implied when they ask that question that all, everybody who saw this would be saved. The answer is, of course, hardly anybody would be saved. It would have no effect at all. The truth is, very few would believe and repent, if any. The truth is, hardly anyone would accept Jesus Christ if they if they were confronted by someone who Christ had resurrected and sent to them, they wouldn't matter. No impact whatsoever. Remember the parable of the vineyard, the Pharisees, right? The tenant farmers. Christ sent to them the story. He sent to them prophet after prophet, agent after agent. What did the tenant farmers do? They killed them. They killed the one sent by Christ. The Pharisees, Christ resurrected Lazarus. What did the Pharisees first thing they wanted to do to Lazarus? Kill him. How many people are going to believe because someone is ridden from the dead? The Pharisees knew beyond any doubt that Christ had resurrected Lazarus. They were there. Read the text. They saw Lazarus resurrected from the dead. How many Pharisees repented and believed in Christ when they saw Lazarus resurrected? Zero. Some, eventually, we'll get to that later. As I said last Sunday, the Pharisees had certainly anticipated that if they killed Lazarus again, which is what they wanted to do, Christ would simply re-resurrect Lazarus. And we get into this kill Lazarus, re-resurrect Lazarus. Pretty soon, after about the fifth or tenth time, Lazarus would volunteer to be killed. It would be ultimately funny. And the Pharisees recognized that killing Lazarus again, Christ would simply re-resurrect him, compounding the problem. My point being is that the brood of vipers did not care that Christ had power over death. 
It did not matter to them. Truth and life did not matter. Resurrection did not matter. So, to re-ask the question, who could ignore? Who could fail to be moved by a large contingent of resurrected dead appearing throughout Jerusalem? Pretty much everybody. Meant nothing. Very few might have. And once you grasp this, mankind will not care. Mankind will not repent. Irrespective of the evidence. Irrespective of the signs. People tell me all the time, for me I had a sign. Boy, would I believe. I'd like the church to do a sign. If only the church would do a sign. Christ says only evil people seek after signs. There'll be all kinds of signs in Revelation. Revelation 7, 15 through 17. They don't care. Blaspheme anyway. God puts all the signs you can imagine. They still blaspheme and hate God. Revelation 9, 20. Revelation 16, 9. Revelation 16, 21. Signs and wonders are going to abound. Real ones, not fake ones. Real signs and wonders. And mankind will nonetheless overwhelmingly reject their Creator. In fact, they will blaspheme Him and spew profanities at Him while He's giving them some of the most incredible signs of His existence and His love and His mercy. So, reformulate this. A couple of thousand resurrected saints pour into Jerusalem. Pharisees didn't even think it's a problem. It's not a problem. No problem here. As I said last week, the Pharisees, they have contingency meetings all the time. These are organized people. They had committees to deal with the resurrected dead. Did they know that the dead would be resurrected and come into the city upon the death of Christ? Did they know that? They were Jews. And not just any Jews. What kind of Jews were they? They were the most scholarly, Old Testament, theologians, experts in the world. Did they know that somewhere in the Old Testament, this is a sign of the Messiah? Yes, they knew it. Did they expect it? Yes, they expected it. They had already had a meeting and they already knew what their countermeasures were going to be. It's not a problem. The Pharisees, you see, know their audience. Listen, they just dealt with healing leprosy. Christ poured thousands and thousands of lepers healed into them. They had to do the Leviticus 14 ritual, remember? Did that sway Jerusalem? Did that change a single Pharisee? Remember, of the ten lepers, only one leper, the Samaritan, returned. And that's the only one of the ten that worshipped and glorified Jesus as God. The other nine didn't return. They were healed of leprosy. That didn't even, that didn't even move them. One out of ten was saved. If Christ were to walk into the cancer ward of Providence Hospital and find the most devastated cases and, and heal all of them in there, what are the percentages they would believe he was God and believe in him and be saved and glorify him? 
How many? The math says one. Yes, sir. That's right. Absolutely right. We'll get to that in just a a second. The the, the nine that went back were all likely Jewish residents of Jerusalem. The Samaritan was the one oddball in the group, right? He wasn't going to go to Jerusalem. He goes back to God. He says, thank you for saving me. You're God. The same crowds who cried, save us now, as Christ was above the donkey foal, entering into Jerusalem, would soon scream, crucify him now, kill him now. And the Pharisees knew that. The tenant farmers know their, know their people. Let's ask some other, some other questions that aren't asked very often. This time from the correct perspective. If, now whenever you put if in front of Christ, you know you're in thin ice right off the bat, okay? Don't write me letters, I know. If Christ God, being omniscient, duh, knowing all things, of course, knew the resurrected saints would have very little impact, which he did, and he even said they would have very little impact, why did he send them? Why did he resurrect them? Who is he again? He's God. What is he doing? He's saving people. Why did he resurrect them? To prove that he's God and to save people. It is what he does. He sends his agents. So, who did he send? Who came out of the graves? There's all kinds of views. I'll give you a popular one. Abraham. Moses. Elijah. Elisha, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, he sent them again. Let's go read and see how that worked out, if that's your view. That's a popular view. Luke 16, uh, 29 through 30. Does this sound familiar? This is where the rich Pharisee is in torment. Lazarus, the beggar, uh-oh, guy named Lazarus. That's interesting. It's probably a coincidence. We can ignore it completely and just move on. That would be wrong. But I have Lazarus and a Pharisee, right? A rich Pharisee. And the rich Pharisee says this to Abraham. And everything the rich Pharisee says, the evil Pharisee says, and this is a lie. And it's evil. And if you think, if you have any sympathy for this guy, he has fooled you. And just go home, get a magic marker, and write sucker across your forehead. Because you have been fooled by this guy. Fortunately, I kept the cap on that when I grew that across my forehead. That won't happen as I get older. Then he said to Abraham now, the rich, evil Pharisee who always lies, who's a viper. This is a viper. He's one of the brood of vipers, right? I beg you, therefore, Father. Is he begging him? No. He's trying to. He has a plan. He has Satan's concepts in him. So you can think God and Satan here, if you wish. It would be perfectly appropriate to do that. Then Satan said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send Lazarus to my father's house. So send Lazarus. 
And I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. So send Lazarus back from the dead to save my five brothers. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. That's a lie. And the rich Pharisee knows it's a lie. But Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now, well now, isn't that our exact situation? An evil Pharisee asking Abraham to send Lazarus? My, my. Seems to be almost identical. Neither will they be persuaded. Evil is not persuaded by resurrection. How many are saved by this amazing sign? I, I, you can go again and research atheist after atheist that hate God, that hate the Bible, will tell you, if only God would send to me someone resurrected from the dead, I would have believed. The answer is no. Let me just show you a little bit here really fast. Uh, John 12, 42 and 43. This give you a little insight into the situation here. John 42, 12, 42 and 43. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in Christ, in him. So some did. Many did. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praises of men more than the praise of God. So some did believe, but because of the Pharisees. Obviously, the Pharisees had an effective defense structure in case anybody got out of line. They knew the scriptures enough to have a plausible lie in the ready, a counterfeit, a deflection, a substitute. Um, think Egyptian magicians. They had a decoy, a shiny lure. Look at the shiny lure. Over here, here it is. That works in the church, by the way. We are prone to follow the shiny device like a fish. I'm watching a couple of magicians that are famous in Vegas. You can figure out who they are. One doesn't talk. And they're going to put a rabbit into a hat. And the one guy that does all the talking... He has an attractive young lady there, and he's making sure that all of you look at the attractive young lady, and he's doing all the talking, and you're naturally drawn because he has the shiny young lady, and he's doing all the talking, and you're not paying attention to the other guy. So I know that I have to watch the other guy. And when you watch the other guy, the trick is so stupid and so obvious that you go, how does that fool anybody? But it does, because we're going to look at that shiny, bright, flashing thing every time. Pharisee, look over there. Remember Christ says? People will come and go, look over there. Don't, don't look there. Look at what they're doing. The guy, the, the guy that doesn't talk literally takes the rabbit out of his coat and puts it in the hat. I mean, it's so stupid and so obvious that no one could... Po- yes, the whole audience fell for. 
train yourself. I was, as you know, I had a brief period of time where I had uh, uh, responsibilities to do things that you would consider to be in the purview of a of a private uh, detective. I would rescue young girls. I'd do lots of things that were in trouble, uh, make a little side money. And, and I was taught to, when I'm watching television, don't watch anything in the front. Watch everything in the back. Look at the back of the screen. Look at the extras. It's hilarious, by the way, what they do. Don't look at the people in the front. Start seeing through them towards the back. You'll find that to be very valuable to you. As you go through life, you'll avoid lots of problems and crowds that way. Okay, before we get too deep in that direction I just asked, let's return to the resurrected ones who went in Jerusalem. Who are they? Who are these saints? How long had they been dead? You really have two views, right? You have hardly been dead very much, been dead a long, long time. So which view do you have? Be prepared to defend it. Notice the, the, the issue that arises in this comparison to Lazarus automatically because this is in essentially the Lazarus donkey foal context ultimately. The comparison to Lazarus. Lazarus had been dead for four days. It was obvious to those who unwrapped him that this was Lazarus. As soon as they unwrapped him, they knew this is Lazarus. Now what did he look like? But they recognized this is the guy we wrapped up those who were charged with his burial, those who prepared the Lazarus' body for entombment, were the very ones that Christ ordered to remove the wrappings, and that's why he did that. Now you know why. The evidences of Lazarus' resurrection were so apparent that they couldn't be refuted. All of the Pharisees could conceive as a response, remember? They couldn't refute it. Too many people knew that this was Lazarus. All they could do is think about, we've got to re-kill him. Now apply that principle to the ones who came into Jerusalem. If they were ancient, if they were long dead, say Joseph, Josiah, Rebecca, you pick, Adam and Eve, Jonah. They were somebody long dead. Who could attest, uh, who could attest to their identity? Who's going to say, oh, yeah, that's, that's Rebecca? How simple now for the Pharisees to deny, as Dave said. Redirect. Say, oh, no, no, no. I don't know. This, um, we got a thousand crazy people. Christ must have given them all a hundred bucks to come in here and say all this stuff. These aren't dead people, these are actors. This is a trick. This is, a, what do they call those things? A, a bunch of people stand up and sing. What's that called? A mob something, right? I can't, I don't know the name of it. See how out of touch I am. I'll do another or, or, Laurel and Harvey, uh, Hardy joke here in a minute. Uh, what do they call those? Flash mob. Thank you. Okay. M- imagine a thousand people jumped up and said, we're all resurrected from the dead. How many of you would believe it? And the Pharisees said, oh, they're not. They would declare it to be Satan, if you said, no, wait a minute, I know that person. He said, no, no, Christ didn't do this. Satan did this, right? Matthew 12, 24. Everybody tried that. It worked really well, didn't it? It'd stick with the plan. Imagine if, but just bring it into today, Benjamin Franklin, here's one for you, Miles Standish, Lewis and Clark, James Monroe, 
Dolly Madison came into Washington, D.C. today. They walked out of the graves and they walked in to the halls of Congress. Hi, I'm James Monroe. I got a kick out of our former president a long time ago who made me laugh. He said that if Thomas Jefferson were to come into his, uh, into his office, uh, he would make Thomas Jefferson the Secretary of State. And everyone said, we would make you the janitor, Mr. Clinton, and we'd make Thomas Jefferson the president, is what we would do. Uh, have a clue. But anyway, I digress. It is a political season. Who would believe these people today if they came in? Who could they convince? Would they be believed or dismissed? How easy would it be for the media to dismiss them? How easy was it for the Pharisees to take care of these thousand resurrected saints? I submit, therefore, that the evidence seems to be, and again, we'll argue next week, but I'll give you this to chew on today, that these resurrected saints were recognizable people to somebody. Somebody knew who they were in some way. They're following the Lazarus model, if you will. Consider then now this. If you were one of these resurrected ones, you're one of the resurrected ones, who would you seek out? You're going to go into the city that you lived in. Who would you look for? See, isn't that obvious? Just as the lepers. It's the same as the lepers, isn't it? The lepers went back. Where did they go? Did it ever occur to you that some of those lepers went? Christ told them to go see the Pharisees and get that ritual. Some of them went, ooh, they, that's not such a good idea. I have to be careful here. These resurrected, as with the lepers who were healed, they would return to their own families and their own friends. Their priority would be to testify of their resurrection to those who knew them, to those who loved them. They would go back to their family and say, hey, Look at me. I have been resurrected. And Christ did it. That's what they would do. Next critical question for you. Were these resurrected people, were they mortal or immortal? Again, following the Lazarus model, if they were mortal, what would be the first act of the Pharisees? Round them up and kill them, right? Certainly, the Pharisees would start killing them. Are they immortal? If they are immortal, how long did they testify? When did they leave if they've left? Do you know one of the popular positions, and Dave, Supper Dave and I talked about it earlier, one of the popular positions is, is that they're still here. I jokingly call it the Highlander view of the Bible. Obviously, I think it's mockable, don't I? Okay. How many of these are resurrected? How many were there? And, and then why weren't the entire graves, all the graves emptied? Everyone who believed, just empty them all. Why didn't he do that? How many did he take? What percentage? If these are within the first fruits of the resurrections, as most of the resurrection, as most of commentators believe, Christ himself being the first fruits, these would be after his resurrection. Where's after? After. 
So after his resurrection, then their resurrection. That's why some people think two earthquakes instead of one. And next week we'll get into all of that. What was the, why were they chosen? How were they chosen? Based on what criteria? One thing we know for sure, they're saints and thus they're saved believers. What are their ages? What were they wearing? Let me break down the demographic. How many were women? How many were children? How many men? Who unwrapped them? Did they appear to anyone outside of their immediate families? Would they know that they were going to be hunted down and killed if they were mortal by the religious leaders of Israel? If they're immortal, how come they shut up? We don't know where they are now. Anybody know an immortal raised? No. I raise these questions to get you started in the inherent... Uh, um, Complexity that is Matthew 27, 51 through 55. It's Newton's law, after all. All actions are accompanied uh, by reactions. Hundreds of resurrected people appearing in Jerusalem would necessarily collide with the brood of vipers at some point. If they were mortal, the Lazarus model, recently dead, they would face execution. Certainly confinement. Also, uh, many of those would be considered to just be misdiagnosed, right? Wouldn't that be the first thing you'd say? Hey, they weren't really dead. Earthquake somehow shook them out of their comatose state. Who unwrapped them? Because the Jews wrap you up pretty tight. They would say they were prematurely declared dead, therefore awakened by the earthquake, not a genuine resurrection. It's a swooning, right? Well, they say that about Christ all the time. He didn't really die. He swooned. How many people believe the swooning theory in this world today? More than believe that he was resurrected, I can tell you that. But, however, if they were ancient, long-dead saints, their bodies would have been mostly what when they resurrected? Mostly dust, powder, right? So to repeat the questions, what did they look like? Who would believe them? Note that Thomas did not believe them, right? Thomas said, I'm not going to believe that Christ is resurrected until I could put my hands on him. Well, these resurrected dead people, Thomas didn't believe in them for some reason, or didn't see them, or didn't hear of them, nor did Peter but again, that makes sense. The disciples scattered pretty much. They were also being hunted. If caught, they would be executed. Keep in mind, though, that Christ wouldn't allow that. He would lose none. I have a note to read uh, Luke 23, 49, and I have no idea why I wrote that. Let's see. This will be fun. Oh. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So, do these women see them? There was a very limited communicative capability in Jerusalem. By that I mean that something could happen in this city and the entire city wouldn't know it. It would consider Anchorage for a second. Something could happen in South Anchorage and that would be the only part of Anchorage that knew it. There's no intercommunication capability in Jerusalem at this time. For that matter, any city of the world at that time. So what two or three thousand visitors could come into this city and no one would know it. 
two or three thousand visitors though that were resurrected could come into the city of Jerusalem and be largely unobserved. It wouldn't attract any attention at all. How could you tell they were resurrected? What did they look like again? What were they wearing? What were their ages? What were their genders? What does a resurrected person look like to you? How would you know he was resurrected? Would he talk to you? Did he glow? We'd run from those people thinking they were radioactive, right? So those who assert that these resurrected saints would have been in the would have been the foremost event at the time are intentionally wrong. They know that this is not the case, but they will tell you, the atheist writers will tell you, listen, if this had happened, everybody would know it. The opposite is true. No one would know it and most wouldn't care if not all. Trust not the conclusions of the atheists. They're intentionally wrong. Duh. A great earthquake had occurred. Rocks split. What rocks, by the way, is he talking about? All the rocks split, or does he have specific rocks in mind? Matthew. What rocks do you think he's talking about? How big are the rocks? Where are the rocks? The sun went dark. A loud voice. How loud was loud? Unbelievably, unbearably loud. Terrifyingly loud. Read Exodus. God's voice is really difficult to deal with. Sons of thunder, right? So loud. Everybody saw the rocks. I'm sorry, saw the darkness. They heard the voice and they felt the voice. It hurt. Physically painful. They felt the earthquake. Only a few, maybe a couple of three, four thousand people saw the resurrected saints out of a city of well over a million. It's not even a blip. Who got saved? Why did he send them? Did Matthew see them? He must have seen them. How did he see one? Or two? How did he know? The other apostles didn't know. The other disciples didn't know. The women didn't seem to know. Nobody else knew. Matthew knew this happened. He must have been a what? Eyewitness. Did any of the other apostles believe him? Do you think he told Thomas? Thomas, I saw my brother, my sister, my father, my neighbor. He came out of the grave. I saw this guy, this woman. Thomas, I don't believe in you. I'm not going to believe you. Till what? Till I see Christ himself. And Christ said, that's really good, Thomas, that you believe me because you've seen. Blessed are those who believe without being seen. If you won't believe Moses and the prophets, if you won't believe the scripture, you're not going to believe the resurrected. John know about them? Peter? I think they did. I think they believed Matthew eventually. Why only Matthew? Why is this only in Matthew? Because Matthew is a what? He's a Jew writing to Jews. That's why. Next week, 
come ready to defend your view. Will the musicians please come forward? Did I finish on time? 